What do you know? What are you particularly strong in? What kind of information or part of life are you the best at? Do you know a lot about history? Do you know a lot about politics? Maybe it's math or science. Maybe it's current events or popular culture. I think uh, even all of us would probably say whatever we think we're strongest at, we also see our weaknesses in it. That there's something that can come along that surprises us that we didn't know. I remember as a kid, I loved watching cowboy movies and uh, have a lot of memories of just sitting down enjoying the movie, but the problem was a lot of times I couldn't tell who the bad guy was. So I was constantly asking my parents, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Unless it was a John Wayne movie. I love John Wayne, and I knew if John Wayne was in it, he was the good guy. But there was also a little problem that I had watching these movies. I understood they weren't really happening. I understood these were actors portraying events in, you know, from history or whatever. But somehow I missed the little fact that when they die in the movie, they're not actually dying. And I remember pondering, how much do these people have to get paid that they're willing to die in the movie? And I was, I was thinking to myself, what would I be willing to get paid? I, nope, not going to do it. And I remember very specifically this one day we were watching a John Wayne movie. And at the end of the movie, I don't remember which one it was, he dies. And I remember going into the bathroom and crying and crying because John Wayne was dead. But I, I was obviously missing something. I thought I understood the construct of how movies were made, but I was missing something. But it's not just as a kid. Even as adults, there's things we might be particularly good at, but we're missing some little detail that changes the way we perceive it. Last year, I was in Liverpool, and part of my job sometimes as a video producer is capturing footage behind the scenes at events. And at this particular event, part of my task for the day was to get some behind-the-scenes footage of this well-known Christian speaker going to the stage. So he was in his green room, and he had this—this this is a really weird venue where the green rooms were on the second floor up uh, really far from the stage. And it took forever to get around in this venue, and so I just decided I was going to go there early, like— way early, 20 or 30 minutes before he was supposed to go to the stage, and that was probably 45 minutes before he was supposed to speak. So I get get there, and I know I have some time, so I put I have my camera on its little steady cam gimbal, so I put that down on the ground. As soon as I set it down, he comes out of the room. And I, I grab my camera, and I'm following him, getting that shot going down the hallway, looking really good. He turns the corner. He goes into the elevator. I'm swinging in there, getting that shot of him in the elevator, as soon as he looks at me, I realize, I think I might have missed something. And I'm thinking, he looks at me and says, what are we doing, guys? Uh, just getting some shots. Uh, what I didn't know, there was no bathroom on the second floor. He was just preparing to go to the stage by going down to the bathroom. And he had to go all the way to this elevator, go down. So I'm in the elevator. Yeah, yeah, you guys take care of that. I'll just get some shots of the elevator. 
But I was missing some key bit of information. Even though I've done this so many times, this should be an area I'm good at. But I was missing something. Our knowledge compared to God is so limited. If you think about what we have and what we understand, we're so far away from God and his grasp of all things. The God of the universe understands, sees everything, past, present, future. There is nothing beyond his grasp. There are a lot of ways we could explore God's omniscience, his all-knowing nature in a sermon. And I'm not, my goal is not to do a proper treatise on that, but to look specifically at Jesus and what he was wanting to communicate to his disciples. That just highlighting some specific moments where Jesus was intentionally telling his disciples something about the future that I think is particularly helpful to us and our faith, giving us strength for hard times. And I'm going to be bouncing around in the Gospels primarily because I'm, I'm just wanting to highlight these moments. If, if you want to have Scripture open, probably Mark 8 and John 16 are going to be where we'll, we'll see the most. God knows all things, and we've been taught that since Sunday school. But I think the one part of his all-knowing nature that astounds us the most and probably impacts us the most is his knowledge of the future. We've known people that are really smart and have a great grasp of something that's beyond our ability, that when we hear them talk and explain things, it's astounding. But we don't know people that know the future. And it shows us his godness more than any other of his knowings because it's so different from our abilities. Point one of this sermon, if you like to have points, is Jesus knows the future. And we'll be looking at Mark 8. How does it benefit us to know that Jesus knows the future? Before we answer that, I want to highlight a few places where Jesus was very intentionally telling his disciples what was about to happen or what would happen in the future. So we're just going to look at a few of those. Mark 8, starting at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So he's even in this very compacted uh, retelling of what he told, there's some really clear specifics that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. Turn one chapter later to Mark 9, starting in verse 30, a second time. Jesus tells his disciples what's about to happen. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, 
for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And then a third time, one chapter later, Mark 10, verse 32. Jesus tells it again, this time with even more detail. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So even more specifics here that not only is Jesus going to be captured, he's going to be delivered. Jesus is telling them he knows he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be given over. Who's he going to be given over to? To the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn, condemn him. They were the ones that instigated this. They had their trial. They condemned him. They said he was worthy of death, but they couldn't kill him. And Jesus knew that. And he says what is going to happen, that they would be turned over to the Gentiles, the Romans. What did the Romans do to Jesus? They mocked him. They spit on him. They flogged him and killed him. And three days later, Jesus rose. So Jesus is very, very specific. Things that can be matched with what actually happens later. As they were approaching Jerusalem... For the triumphal entry, Luke records just a little moment in that day as Jesus is with his disciples. He's approaching the city. They get to a point where they can see Jerusalem laid out before them. Everyone's seeing it, but Jesus is seeing something that no one else can see. Something that's going to happen about 40 years in the future when that city and that temple are destroyed. Jesus says this, where his disciples can hear it. When he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. In you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's an interesting little moment in this day when Jesus would ride into the city, he'd be praised and celebrated, but he takes this little moment to invest something in his disciples. What would happen in AD 70 when Jerusalem fell? Titus came in with his Roman legions, he surrounded the city. It's very interesting. He actually had his men tear down all of any structures, any trees were cut down, anything that would hinder their view of the city. Then he commanded his soldiers to create a wooden barricade around the city. It was a wooden wall that went miles around the city. Jesus told them that would happen, that the enemy would surround the city, that this barricade would be put up to hem them in on every side. Jesus also talked about 
the city being completely torn down. They will not leave one stone upon another. This is how Josephus described it, the Hebrew historian who was there when Jerusalem fell. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, Titus, Caesar, gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came after believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Why was Jesus telling his disciples this? What benefit did they get from his descriptions of what would happen when he went to the cross or what would happen to the city of Jerusalem 40 years later? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us why he told this to his disciples. In John chapter 13, verse 19, he says, From now on, I'm telling you, before it comes to pass, so when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. The purpose, these details, these prophetic specifics, the goal of it wasn't for them to know the future and be able to master what was going to happen, but it was so that when it did happen, they would know Jesus was not surprised by this. He saw it completely, perfectly before it happened. Again, in John 14, verse 29, Jesus tells them, I've told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. The purpose that Jesus was foretelling the future specifically, perfectly, was to build faith. Knowing that Jesus knows the future gives us confidence that he is who he says he is and that he's worthy to be trusted. Knowing that he knows builds our faith. Point two, Jesus knows my sins better than me. As Jesus was heading to the cross, he gathered his disciples together for a feast, the Passover feast, what we would call the Last Supper. In that supper that I think from the descriptions I read in Scripture, it feels like a very warm, wonderful moment where they're all gathered together, kind of like a Thanksgiving dinner with your best friends. You see the Apostle John reclining on Jesus. Everyone's together celebrating something that had been celebrated since they were kids. Jesus knows perfectly what they're about to go through. He knows perfectly the trauma that he himself is about to go, to, go through. He knows what the disciples are going to face just hours away. Jesus also knows their sinful natures. He knows not only the sins, every sin that they've ever committed before this time, he knows specifically the sins they're going to commit within hours. And every sin for the rest of their life, all of the wrongs that they will do. Matthew 26, turn there. 
just want to highlight just the specifics where Jesus is pointing these things out to his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 20. When it is evening, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him not to have been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So this meal, they're all gathered around. Judas is right there, enjoying this warm, special moment with Jesus. But so too are all the disciples. A few verses later, Jesus, in uh, verse 30, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus knows every single one of his followers will fall away from him. And of course, Peter, Peter answers, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Not only does Jesus know that Peter is going to deny him, he knows the exact second. He pictures it all. He sees it all to the point that he knows Peter is going to deny him the third time and the rooster is going to crow. Picture yourself on an anniversary date where you've uh, booked the nice restaurant, set everything up great for a wonderful evening. You're enjoying the food. It's great. Conversation's fun and funny. And yet you know that tomorrow your wife or your husband is going to leave you. How would that affect how you handle that interaction? I think for me it would be pretty hard to have a wonderful fun, enjoyable anniversary dinner. I'm not even sure I could make it through the dinner. I would just want to be somewhere else. How does Jesus interact with his disciples at this Last Supper? What does he say to them? Matthew 26 tells us, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Like the disciples, Jesus knows our sins perfectly, past present, future. He knows them exactly how it's going to happen, how it has happened. Nothing escapes his understanding or knowledge. And yet, what does he invite us into? Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
He doesn't offer himself. He doesn't give himself. He doesn't pour himself out because of how good we are, how well we behave. He pours it out because he is a merciful and loving God. And even knowing the wrongs that we will commit, he offers himself to be broken, to be poured out for our forgiveness. Don't let your failures be a wedge in your relationship with God. I know sometimes for me, even this week, I feel like I'm, I see how wicked I am, how foolish I am, how unlike Christ I am, and it makes me uncomfortable even to come before him. Here I am again, a sinner doing the same thing that I know I shouldn't do. Knowing that Jesus knows me perfectly, intimately, there's no flaw or brokenness in me, no sin that he hasn't seen. There's no surprise, and yet he has wooed me. He has called me to himself. He's offered his body and his blood to be consumed for my forgiveness and redemption. Take Acts 3.19 to heart. Repent then. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Fellow sinners, Jesus is inviting you into that repentance, forgiveness, refreshment. Knowing that Jesus knows that nothing surprises him, even our own failures, gives us confidence in his perfect forgiveness in his perfect love, in his perfect mercy. Point three, Jesus knows my dark times. It's a lot easier to delight in God's omniscience, in his perfect knowing when everything is going okay. But when things collapse around us, when it feels like nobody's at the wheel of this bus of our life, it's a lot harder to celebrate and delight in God's perfect knowing of the future. It's in times like that that often our faith is tested, that we are tempted to doubt, that we do doubt, and are tempted to even fall away. But it's those very times that are the most crucial for us to rest in the all-knowing, perfect hands of Jesus. And I think you'll see in these scriptures that one of the key things that Jesus was trying to invest in his disciples before he went to the cross was to make sure they knew that all of this that was about to happen was perfectly planned, that it was for a reason And that when it all happened and they fell away, when it felt like everything collapsed, eventually they would come to a point and see Jesus understood all of this ahead of time. And that would be a lesson for them for the future, for the suffering that they would face, that there's nothing beyond Jesus's care or knowing. John 16, verses 1 through 4, after Jesus has talked about all kinds of 
rough things that were ahead of them. Jesus says this to his disciples. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus was telling the disciples how the world is going to hate them. The world is going to reject them. It'll come a time where they'll be pushed out of the, the synagogues, out of the churches. Even would get to the point that those that would kill them or would try to kill them would think they were serving God by doing it. And yet, in this future where there would be so much persecution, so much suffering, so much hardship, Jesus wanted them to remember back to this day when he told them what was going to happen, specifically what would happen. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. None of that suffering, none of that persecution, none of that hardship that these disciples would go through, that the early church would go through, that you and I will go through, are outside of God's knowing and outside of his sovereignty. Whatever hardship may come our way, it's important to know that God has always known that it would be coming. For us, it's more important to know that God knows the future than to know it ourselves. The truth is that our minds, our limited abilities, in truth, probably couldn't even handle the future. If we could know it now, it would totally corrupt our moment. We wouldn't know how to live now because we would be so, even good things, all the good things, all the bad, it would just mess up our day. Luke 18 tells us, and there's several verses that I could point to, tells us how the disciples were reacting to what Jesus was telling them. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. There's multiple times where that's made really clear. The disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Even though he's giving them these specifics about the future, mm, blank, don't get it. And it wasn't the purpose for them to grasp the future and make plans and prepare for that day. It was to build their faith, to strengthen them for that moment. It's better for us to know that he knows the future than to know it ourselves. It made me think of taking a young child to the doctor. I don't know how you other parents would handle it. If I know I have a three-year-old that's got to go get a vaccination shot, I'm not going to tell them about it a month ahead of time and remind them every day, remember you have that vaccination shot at the doctor. I probably wouldn't even tell them they're going to the doctor until maybe the day before or the morning of, and I'm not sure when I would tell them they're going to get a shot because it just tortures them, thinking about that moment. God's mercy and wisdom protects us from what is to come, but he does give us confidence that he holds the future in his hands. Had a, a weird moment lately. I was capturing 
old family videos, digitizing them into the computer so we'd have them. And just like all these random moments from starting with like when Joy was born, even before that, going up through the years. And there was this, I hit this one spot where we were in our first apartment here in Charlotte. I'm videoing, Julia's there, sitting on our big deck. Joy and Elisa are tiny little girls running around with their princess dresses on. Really, just a normal part of the day, but really special. Julia's sitting at our little tiny princess table. There's food, you know, we've had this little princess party. But Joy and Elisa are doodling around. But what caught my eye was something that reminded me of one of the worst times that we faced would be just a few months around the corner from that video. Because I saw that Julia was pregnant in the video, and it kind of surprised me. I was, who is she pregnant with? And you're like thinking through the, the years. She was pregnant with our third child that some of you may not know did not make it to full term, Abigail. She was about, uh, I think it was one month before she was due, Julia went in for an appointment, and the nurse couldn't find a heartbeat. So she was taken to the hospital, and it was determined that the baby had died. But she still had to go through the whole birth process. And so it was, you know, inducing labor all that time in the hospital for a baby to be born that we know has already passed away. And I remember holding Abigail in my arms. (laughs) Precious little girl, fully formed, but lifeless. We had several hours there with her, different ones of us holding her. She was buried later that week. But thinking back to that video where Abigail was alive in Julia's womb. And we're having this special moment as a family, just a very normal moment, just hanging out and the girls running around. Julia's enjoying them. What if we'd have known that, I don't know why it was God's plan for Abigail to die in the womb, but it was. What if we'd known that she would never make it to full term? How would that affect every day of that pregnancy? Would we have been able to have that fun moment on the porch where we're just enjoying life, enjoying what God has given us today? I feel really challenged by what Jesus is communicating to his disciples that he's given us today to make the most of today, to be faithful today and leave tomorrow's cares and troubles and successes in the hands of a God who knows them perfectly. Just a couple verses from John 16 before we close is in this whole section where Jesus is talking about how the world's going to hate him, how they're going to be killed and pushed out of the synagogue. He gives his disciples something to hold on to. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is not saying that we won't sorrow now, that we won't have hardship now. In fact, he's promising we will. But what do we have to hold on to? I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That is the future that we have. In the same way that Jesus exactly predicted, foretold what would happen at his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. In the same way that he foretold what would happen at the collapse of Jerusalem. Jesus has foretold what our future is for those who are in Christ. John 16, 32 through 34. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Better than knowing the future is finding peace in the one who holds the future. Better than knowing what is to come is knowing the one who has overcome the world. Let's close in prayer.